We're going to start there. A couple disclaimers before we get started. Uh, John, a week or two ago, mentioned a camp that uh, some of us attended, and uh, I had an opportunity to speak at the camp uh, on Zechariah 3. So, uh, Michael and Eric and Isaac are, are very familiar with some of what I'm going to say, um, but I've had modified it a little bit, and, um, you know, just in thinking about maybe something that would be helpful for our group, you know, at the end, we're going we're gonna to kind of take a right turn where uh, I didn't uh, in our, our camp situation. And also, um, for those of you, uh, yeah, I, I spoke briefly, I think, at the Lord's top, uh, table on Zechariah 3 about six years ago. And uh, so a little bit of this might be a, uh, a repeat from there as well, if you can, if you remember. Um, so anyway, so we'll get into uh, Zechariah, the, the third chapter. Uh, let's go ahead and start in verse 1. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebu- rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, And the angel said to those who are standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. So this scene takes place over the course of a few verses, but there are, there's a lot kind of packed in, into here. And in the few minutes that we have, I am not going to do justice to it, uh, to, to un- uncover or unpack all that we see that is happening. But again, I hope some of the things that we talk about tonight uh, will, be, will be beneficial uh, to us. I want you to think for a second about situations where you've been kind of anxious. You've had some anxiety running through your body. I know, I know whenever I'm in a situation where maybe I'm unprepared for something uh, or maybe a situation that I'm just not comfort, comfortable in, I can feel that. Um, think, kids, thinking about like maybe a test that you're not ready for and the time is for you to take it and you haven't done the preparation. I remember papers that I'm turning in and I'm thinking, oh man, I did not do as much work as I needed to do and just really felt... Uh, uncomfortable. I have a reoccurring dream. Actually, my brother and I have this reoccurring dream, and maybe you do as well. Uh, for those of you that um, that are a little bit older, I'm I'm at I'm actually uh, as an as an adult, I'm back at Florida College, and I'm about ready to graduate, like the last week of school, and. I realized there's a class that I was supposed to take and I had never even shown up for. I don't even know where this class is at. I mean, I've completely, just completely failed. And it's one of those dreams where you wake up and you're so glad that that was a dream and not real life. I actually said this at camp and two, two other counselors came up to me and said, I have that same dream. It's, a, I guess, pretty common when you're feeling unprepared about something. Have you ever had that uh, situation where you feel unprepared, you feel inadequate? Now, let's try to put ourselves in the shoes of Joshua, the high priest here in this vision. You know, think about 
what he would have felt like. I think he would have felt all of those stresses, all of those anxieties, but I think he would have felt them, you know, even more. Uh, he would have felt them extra. This scene full unfolds before us like a courtroom drama. Joshua, the high priest, is standing there. You've got the angel of the Lord standing there as well. They're standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan is right there to accuse Joshua, the high priest. This brings to mind Revelation, the 12th chapter in verse 10, where Satan is described as the deceiver of the whole world. Andy Cantrell said that it's uh, Satan, he lies to us to get us to fall into temptation. And then once we've done that, it's like he runs to God and tells the truth on us. And I think that's what, that's the kind of the picture here. I don't think Satan's lining up uh, with, with Joshua to tell lies about Joshua He's there to tell the truth about Joshua. Joshua as a representative of all the people here, right? As the high priest. And thinking about the context of this vision, again, Joshua the high priest, of anyone who would appreciate the reverence and the awe that you would approach God with, it would have been him. One man, once a year, the high priest would come after having offered a sacrifice for his sins and for the sins of the people, would come bearing the blood of the sacrifice to the Lord to make atonement for sins. That is how you would approach God or one would approach God. And of anyone who would be intimately aware of their own sin compared to the holiness of God, it would be Joshua. In the context, Israel has just, or, the, the, or Judah has just gone through a 70-year prison sentence under Babylonian captivity because of their unfaithfulness to God. And it is because of God's abundant grace and mercy that they've been able to return to Jerusalem where they are working on the temple and almost immediately they get discouraged by opposition. And for 20 years, the temple sat with no repairs being made. And we can, we can look in a Haggai contemporary where they're, they're busy doing work. They're doing all sorts of things, but they're, they're spending their time working on their own homes. And they're not working on the Lord's house for 20 years. Now, I've had some projects at home that take way too long. But I feel pretty good compared to waiting 20 years to complete a project. But that's where they were. They were busy, but they weren't working on the right things. Do we ever do that? We know that there are things that we need to be working on. But we've got our attention divided elsewhere. We've got other priorities. We've got other things to do because now is not the time to work on those things, just like now wasn't the time to work on the temple of the Lord because of the opposition. And the Lord comes through Haggai and says, now's the time. So if anyone should appreciate the reverence and the awe that one would have before approaching the Lord, it would have been Joshua. And if anyone would appreciate the horribleness of sin compared to holy God, it would have been Joshua as well. But then let's consider Joshua's condition in verse 3. Joshua is standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now, I don't, want to be too, I don't want to be too crass here, so that's not my intent. But that word for filthy uh, would invoke ideas of either excrement or vomit. 
That's, that's, that's what he was covered in. I have said this before, but, you know, when I was younger, I was probably, I'm guessing, eight years old. My brother was probably, you know, 11. Uh, we were at my aunt and uncle's just down the road from, from Tyler's, where he grew up. And my grandparents and my uncle, they had chicken coops, like 15,000 chickens in each of these chicken coops. I mean, it was just an abundance of chickens. And every so often, they would hire someone to come, and they would have to clean out the bottom of the, the pit of the chicken coop, right? And you can, you can imagine the, the foulness of that. And I remember they, they left us, my brother and I, at the farm, uh, which was mistake number one, and mistake number two, well, they actually, they, they told us just to stay away from that area where they had done the clean out. There, there's equipment worth over $300,000, and they didn't tell us a thing about that. They just said, stay out of that. Like, that's, that was their warning. To this day, I don't know how it happened, but my brother and I ended up covered head to toe in it. I mean, I'm sure once, you know, someone pushed one, they stepped in it, and then we, you know, I pushed back or something. But we kind of came to a realization uh, how much trouble we are in and how, what a mess we are. And I didn't stand up to my, my older brother too often when I was a kid, but when we saw my grandmother coming in her truck, I, my brother jumped into a field to hide. And I remember I was so, um, I was so disgusted that I couldn't take it anymore. I had to, I had to get this off me. Um, I felt it was awful. When I think of Joshua standing in filthy garments before the Lord, I think that, that's what I think. That's, that's what I imagine. Uh, just feeling that, how much worse when you're in the presence of the Lord. Um, he's clothed in filthy garments. How do you think he must have felt? Some of those things we talked about cause anxiety, perhaps, like being unprepared or inadequate, offensive. Do you think he felt ashamed? Out of place? Satan's there to accuse him, and he's standing in filth. Do you think he felt hopeless? Think he felt helpless or guilty, in need, desperate? I, I, I would probably say that we couldn't really appreciate the level of stress and anxiety that Joshua would have felt at that point. And if that's not bad enough, just being there, like I said, Satan's on his right. He's there to accuse him. Um, It's one thing to know and feel the weight of guilt, of sin, to know that you're inadequate or you're unprepared or that you haven't measured up. Um, it's much worse to have someone there just highlighting it, celebrating it, pointing it out. That's the rule. That's what Satan's doing. That's what Satan's doing. Uh, Satan is the accuser in Revelation 12. We're going to look at that here in just a second. 
One word of admonition here or just encouragement is let's not be accusers of each other. Now, obviously, if there's sin, that we need to work together in a biblical way to, uh, to, to work through that, um, to, to bring about uh, reconciliation, peace with God, and repentance. But we must not be accusers. Satan is not pictured here as, as going to Joshua and pointing out, hey, you've got some filth, and let's, what can we do to work this out? He's bypassing Joshua, and he's going straight to the Lord. He's not looking for reconciliation. He's looking for judgment. And so in our hearts and in our minds and in our conversations, let's just, let's not be accusers. What's interesting in this situation, as helpless as and stress-riddled, I'm sure, Joshua was, he doesn't say a word through this. And can you imagine the surprise that would have come across Joshua as he hears the words of the, the word of the Lord? The unthinkable, the unimaginable has happened. Knowing he stands condemned, rightly accused of the things that, that, that Satan's going to say, instead of judgment, he gets an abundance of mercy and grace that is poured out on him. Not only does he avoid the punishment, escape the punishment that was rightly due to him, his iniquity is removed, his filth, he's been, his filthy garments are replaced by, by rich garments or festal robes, as some translations say. And... In this vision, I, I love verse 5, and I don't want to play fast and loose with the scriptures, but, you know, Zechariah is witnessing this, this vision, and he chimes in. Like, he sees what's happening, and he says in verse 5, let them put a clean turban on his head. In Exodus 28, one of the things that we read is that the, the priests, the robes that they would wear, or the, the garments that they would wear would include a turban. And it had a gold plate on the turban, and it would say, holy to the Lord. Um, Zechariah sees what's going on, and that is like fitting for that. This one who was filthy, who, who was covered in excrement, is now clean with pure robes. Let this guy, let this man be holy to the Lord. In these, first five, in these few five verses that we just read, there's two very distinct pictures of Joshua presented. One in which he is covered in sin. He is helpless. He's hopeless. He's inadequate. He's unprepared. He's out of place. He stands condemned. He's shameful. And in the other picture, he's cleansed and he's forgiven. He's holy to the Lord. He is chosen by God. And we skipped over that part. Did you notice the basis on which the Lord removes his iniquity and gives him new robes and puts a clean turban on his head. It wasn't because Joshua was just, you know, he really is a good guy. Um, or, you know, his sins aren't that bad. His garments weren't that filthy, just a little dirty. No, it's because God chose him. God tells Satan he is a brand plucked from the fire. So we have these two pictures that he's covered in sin or he's chosen by God and cleansed. And so the question what version of Joshua do we identify with as we sit here tonight? The one guilt-riddled? The one feels unprepared, ashamed? 
Or do we feel like the one that's been chosen by God, cleansed and forgiven? For those of us who've, who've been baptized and put on the name of the Lord, at one point we probably, we should have felt like the second picture, the one that's clean, that's forgiven, that's been redeemed, that's been rescued, the one that's, been, that's received grace, that didn't deserve it, but got it anyway because of the grace of God and the love of God. We've probably felt that way, but do we feel that way still? And just in conversations with people, it feels like, it seems like too often we identify with that first version of Joshua, the one that's still covered in sin and hopeless and helpless to overcome it. Like we know that we have forgiveness of sins through Jesus, but, but something in our life, maybe it's habitual sin that keeps weighing us down. Maybe there's bitterness or discontent in our heart. Maybe there's there's things like, like lust or uh, lying or laziness is what we talked about at camp. Maybe those things are, are just overcoming us on a daily basis. It keeps weighing us down. Do we feel far from God? One of the reasons why I love this vision is because it reminds me that when I feel like I'm fighting a losing battle of, of, you know, my own personal battle, it helps me to reflect upon that God has poured out his grace and mercy on me, that he has chosen me, he has chosen you, and that he has put festal robes on us, and he has put a turban on our head that says, holy to the Lord, that we are not helpless, we are not hopeless. And when Satan is there to accuse us, it's not that we have to muster up our own strength and have our own words to defend ourselves, that by the grace of God, he comes to our defense. Joshua doesn't say a word here, guys. Our identity and our purpose is now we are holy to the Lord, not because we're just really great people or our sin wasn't so bad, but because he chose us. And I feel like sometimes, though, that we, we act like we, we know that the, the Lord's going to overcome, but do we, do we act like the victory is secure, like it's, it's happening? We have all of the confidence in the world. This illustration is for Josh Seabury. In December the 10th, 2011, IU and Kentucky played a basketball game. Um, that year, IU was okay, but Kentucky was really good. I mean, they were like historically good. And I remember they came to uh, Bloomington to play, and I was just hoping the game would be, it'd be a good game. Um, I just didn't want to get embarrassed. I wouldn't be able to face Josh for a bit. And I watched the game, and it was pretty close. And I lived and died by every whistle, um, every bad call, you know, I'm yelling at the ref. Every, every turnover, I'm just, you know, you know there's a, there was a guy, Verdell Jones, and he was notoriously one to kind of turn over the ball or try to do too much and just, like, why is he even on the team? Like, put him on the bench, you know? Just very impatient, very hypercritical, way too invested for someone, uh, like, in their mid-30s should be at that time in their life. I was all over the place. And at the end of the game, um, 
you know, we won at the, the last second shot. It was, it was one of the most amazing things I've ever seen from a sports perspective. It was so good that I watched the game. I've watched the game again. I didn't watch it right away, um, but I have watched it again. Again, something probably someone in their mid-30s shouldn't be doing, but probably better use of my time. Anyways, you know what happened the second time I watched that game? I didn't yell and scream. When Verdell Jones turned the ball over late in the game, I didn't question why he was on the team. Oh, that's Verdell doing Verdell things, you know. My perspective completely changed. And it's because I knew the outcome. I, I knew what was going to happen, and I took joy in everything that happened up until then. Now, if you would have seen me watch that game a second time, and I would have went berserk like I did the first time, you would have just thought I had lost my mind. Our challenge is, is when we go through these ups and downs in life and these, these things where we don't know necessarily what's going to happen the next moment, do we act like we don't know how it, it all ends up? And so we kind of live and die by the, the current circumstance. Or do we trust? We just, we know that God's going to win in the end and we're going to be with him. And so some of these ups and downs we can approach with calmness and faith and trust. In Zechariah, the, the third chapter, beginning in verse 6 through 10, what we see is that after God cleansed Zechariah, he gives him a purpose and he reminds him of what is going to come. He tells Zechariah, the end is not in question. In verse 6, the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. The Lord gives him, cleanses him, gives him purpose, gives him direction, and reminds him he's going to win in the end. The, the end is not in question. I'm reminded of, of David, the story of David and Nabal in 1 Samuel 25. Turn over there for, for a second. 1 Samuel 25. Kind of this chapter is sandwiched in between two stories of David where he has an opportunity to kind of take matters into his own hands relative to Saul and usher in this kingdom that God has promised him. And two times, in a, two times David does, takes the high road and refuses to reach out his hand against the Lord's anointing. And it's an amazing story of faith and trust in God that things are going to work on God's timeline and, and David's not taking matters into his own hand. In verse 25, though, we see a, there's a story in between these two stories of, of David where he starts to take things into his own hands. 
Now, I've, this is my speculation. Um, chapter 25 starts with this phrase, the sentence, now Samuel died. And if you'll recall about the, the one through whom these promises came about David and his kingship um, was Samuel. And I wonder if this story is a reaction to Samuel dying and a crisis that David is going through in terms of how is this all going to work out? Is this all going to work out? And we're not going to read this chapter just for sake of time, but what we see is that David is in the wilderness of Paran, and while he's there, him and his men take care of Nabal's shepherds and their flock. They protect them, and the idea then is that when, when, they, when they return, that, that David will be able to get some sort of uh, repayment for the service that he provides. So the shepherds go back with some of David's servants, and Nabal is completely rude to him. Like, who is David? Now, we know David's fame has spread throughout the land after he killed Goliath. And so it's, 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 it's super insulting what's going to happen, what happens. It's so insulting that Abigail, Nabal's wife, decides to chase after David's servants with a big gift because she knows what might be happening. And sure enough, when David hears the, the response of Nabal, he takes 400 men with swords, and he is intent on killing them all. Revenge. He is taking matters into his own hands. However, when Abigail approaches David, she falls on her face. She appeals to him. What she does is she reminds David of the plans that the Lord has for him. In verse 28, we read, Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord your God, and the lives of your enemies shall... Uh, shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause for grief or pains of conscience for having shed blood without cause or fear uh, or cause or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. Abigail approaches him and just reminds him of all of the things that the Lord has in store for David. And we see that that's very effective. Uh, David um, responds to her, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from the working of salvation from my own hand. The end is not in doubt. We need to be reminding one another and talking to one another about that God has the victory in making sure that we keep it in the forefront of our minds because there's going to be times where we're going to be fighting some battles. Maybe we're going to be in a situation where I'm receiving uh, either uh, criticism or, or persecution that I don't deserve. And maybe our eyes will fill with rage or vengeance or bitterness or hatred. And that's when, as brothers and sisters, we need to remind each other. The victory is Jesus's. 
And he has great things in store for us. And may we have a response similar to what David's, understanding our own fault in, in how we're responding and trusting in the Lord. Turn over to Revelation, the 12th chapter. I referenced this um, a few minutes ago. I just want to take a second to read through this a little bit. Revelation, the chapter 12, it's, there's this picture of this woman and this dragon, and this dragon is formidable. This dragon has seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems. It's, it has power. It has authority. In verse 4, his tail swept down a third of the stars. It is all sorts of ability. It's formidable is, is not even a, a, a good description. It's like a, it's like a dominant um, creature. And in verse 9, it says the great dragon was thrown down and the ancient serpent who is called the devil, the Satan, he's the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is the deceiver. He is the accuser. He is formidable. He's got some authority. How in the world is it that we overcome such an adversary? Verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. God gives us everything we need to overcome. It doesn't matter how formidable the opponent is. We serve a greater God who is going to win, who has won through Jesus. We need to act in faith and trust in him. I do want to spend a few minutes looking at the, the book of Ephesians. As we consider this picture of this transformation that has occurred in Zechariah going from someone standing by the, before the Lord, filthy, stood condemned with an accuser, now in festal robes in a turban with holy to the Lord, justified with purpose and with hope in the future. Ephesians is a chapter, it was a book with the, the, the first few chapters is just another picture of transformation. Uh, in chapter 1, we, it talks about in verse, uh, verse 4 and verse 5, in love he predestined for adoptions to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Now, adoption in this time, um, I might be, you all might have heard this, but I'll cover it quickly, but adoption this time, you know, as an adult, I could, you know, I could have been adopted. Brad Pettis, uh, say he's my, he's my wealthy uncle. I am um, riddled with all sorts of problems. I have debt. Um, Brad could, he could adopt me, and I become part of his, I become his son legally, and everything that I owed gets wiped away. And I am now a new person adopted by Brad. Those are some of the things that when we think about being adopted as sons, that everything about our formal person just goes away. All of the debts, all of the bad stuff, everything is just done away with. And I am a new person in Christ. In chapter 2, it talks about us being uh, dead in trespasses and sins. 
And now we've been raised, we've been resurrected, made alive together in Christ in verse, in verse 5, raised up. Um, and in, in verse 10, we are now his workmanship. Later on, it talks about how we are the temple of the Lord. We go from being strangers and aliens to the temple of the Lord. In verse 3, with the Holy Spirit uh, in our hearts, we become the dwelling place of God. We have purpose. We are holy to the Lord. We have new identity. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about what God has done for us. And chapters 4 through 6 reflect what our lives now look like in Christ. In chapter 4, verse 14, we are no longer children. Tossed to and fro by waves and carried by every wind of doctrine by human cunning, by craftiness, and default schemes. Instead, we speak the truth in love, and we grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. In verse 17, we no longer, um, or yeah, verse 17, we no longer walk as the Gentiles in the futility of the minds, because they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of hearts, it goes on to talk about we're, we're no longer that, but instead, we put off our old self in verse 22. In verse 23, we are renewed in the spirits of our mind and to put on the new self created in the likeness of God in true holiness. One through three, what God has done, what he is doing, what he will do in us in chapters 4 again through 6, what do, how does that impact us? And I would encourage us to read and meditate on what it says in chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, because of, I therefore, Paul is saying, because of all of that that we just talked about, urge you to walk in a manner of the, of the worthy calling, work in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility. I know some verses say with complete Humility, complete gentleness, complete patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I've had a couple of few conversations with people just in terms of the situation that we find ourselves in. And it seems like there's great eagerness for us to, and, and we hear it, uh, great eagerness for us to be united, um, united in Christ, working together, maturing together as God's people, as we see here in chapter four. And the question is like, what, what can we do to, to renew that or to restore that? And what I would recommend is that it starts first with each of us reflecting on chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. That the, the best thing that we could do for our brother and our sisters in Christ is that we can have all humility. And we can be completely gentle. And we can be completely patient. We can bear with one another in love. And we can be eager to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. That bearing with one another in love, you know, you think about bearing with one another. So I think this, the connotation is that there's something that 
that we might need to just put up with one another. So we think of our friends. Our friends are our friends because we probably don't have to do too much bearing. But sometimes our family, right? We don't get to choose our family. And sometimes we need to bear with one another. Um, I forget which version it is. I'm trying to, let me look at my notes. How they, they, we make allowance for each other's faults is what one of the translations says. I don't know if Cole knows this, but one of the things um, that he does, he'll go downstairs uh, sometimes and, and play video games in the basement. And every morning I know if he's been down there because I walk up and the basement door is just, just a little bit open. No other time is the basement door open, but I know Cole's, Cole's been down there because it's just cracked. Um, this is a silly example, but I, you know, it's no big deal. That, you know, I kind of, I kind of like it now because okay, you know, he's he's been here, right? We bear with one another in love, so uh, it might be detrimental to our relationship if I were just hammering him on, on that, you know, him leaving the basement door open. So, you know, I'm thinking about our relationship. What should I do about that? And so I try to handle, you know, just I can overlook that. But what is not bearing with one another love is if, if something else happens and then, I, and then I'm like, and you always leave that basement door open, right? That I'm, I'm harboring, harboring it in my heart to bring out at a later time. This idea of bearing with one another in love is there are things, it's not... It's not perfect how we work together or how we kind of come together. And we're not necessarily seeing, you know, it's not like everything just, we just love each other just because every, the other person's awesome. But there are things that we just overlook because we are bearing with one another in love. We are looking out for the best interests of the other person and we're just going to put up with one another's faults. I don't know if uh, that was a really good analogy or not, so some feedback later on might be helpful on that. But I hope that talks to the spirit with which we work with one another. Later on, it's going to talk about that we are attaining to the unity of faith. But I think it's important that as what we bring to the table as a result of what Christ has done for us in chapters one through three, and the fact that Christ now fills our heart, what we bring to the table is peace and gentleness and humility and kindness and bearing with one another in love. So what can we do? We can do chapters, chapter four, verses one through, uh, one through three there. What we can also do is, uh, I want us to turn over to chapter six real quickly, is we talk about this whole armor of God that God gives us First of all, it reminds us in verse 10, or excuse me, um, yeah, in verse 10 that, and following, that our, our fight isn't with one another. And it's not with others outside of this building. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over the present darkness, spiritual forces. That's who we're fighting up, and God gives us this armor uh, to put on. But he gives us this armor, and then the activity, though, that he calls us to do now that we are fully uh, just shod with all of the armor of God, the activity in verse 10 or 18, pray out all times in the Spirit. He gives us all of this, and what we are called to do is pray. With all prayer and supplication, to that end, 
keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. This idea of supplication is that we are, we are begging the Lord. We are entreating the Lord. We are whole heart going to the Lord for our brothers and sisters in Christ. What can we do to help? We can leave out Ephesians 4 through 6. We can be an Abigail and remind others that the victory has been won and that we're not going to give in to sin because God has plans for us. We're not going to take matters into our own hands because God has plans for us. He's cleansed us. He's put us a new robe on us. He's put a turban on our head that says, holy to the Lord. I love this, going back to our vision, I love this passage in Zechariah 3 because it gives me hope and it gives me comfort that God chose each one of us and that he has replaced our filthy garments with festal robes. He's given us a new turban. He's given us a purpose that we are holy to the Lord. He's assured us that the victory is won. He's told us how we are going to participate in that victory through the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Let us be holy to the Lord. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we'll be dismissed. Our God and Father, uh, Lord, we humbly bow before you. Lord, we are humbled because we have been reflecting upon who you are uh, and what you have done for us, not because we are just so holy and righteous on our own um, or, or that the, the sins that we've committed aren't so bad, but, but Lord, you have chosen us out of your own kindness, your steadfast love, your grace, and your mercy. You've demonstrated in that, that to us by sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. Lord, we were filthy before you. We were rebellious, but uh, you loved us with a love that is so deep. It, it's in, incomprehensible. But Lord, we know it's real because uh, you've given us of your son. You've given us your Holy Spirit. Lord, we, are, we praise you that you have won the battle, and we are, we are grateful that you have revealed that to us uh, so that we can have confidence uh, in who you are and who you would have us to be. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we have great confidence to come before you because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, we have a great motivation uh, to serve you because of what you've accomplished through Jesus. Lord, our hope is steadfast and sure. Um, because it lie, our hope lies with you, and you have overcome. Lord, I pray that uh, as, a, as a family here, Lord, that we might grow in, in, in the unity of faith, but that each one of us, Lord, that we would look to the unity of the Spirit in our own hearts, that it would be full of humility and love and patience and kindness, that we might bear uh, with one another in love, uh, that we might be eager to maintain uh, the spirit of unity and the, the bond of peace that you have called us. Help us, Lord, as individuals that we might, that might be characteristic of each one of us. And as we come together as your church family here, Lord, we, we pray that we would strive for the unity of faith and just help us, Lord, as we work together. Lord, we, we pray that uh, how we show love to one another uh, would be reflective of, would, would just help motivate others to see what we're trying to do in service to you and to service to one another. 
that those who do not know you would come to know you. Lord, we pray that we would have the understanding uh, and the motivation to share your word with others. There is a world of lost souls, Lord, and we want to be instruments of yours to share the hope that comes through Jesus Christ to them. Uh, Give us boldness. uh, Give us understanding and wisdom. Give us humility and give us patience. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.